Hello, I'm Phil Moorhart, Associate Editor of American Libraries, the magazine of the American Library Association, and this is the Dewey Decimal Podcast. ALA expresses our deepest condolences to the families and friends of those lost and injured during the protests in Charlottesville, Virginia. We will not forget their efforts to enlighten and safeguard their communities from bigotry while opposing racist, anti-immigrant, anti-GLBTQ, and anti-Semitic violence. We stand in solidarity with the people of Virginia, as well as anyone who protests hate and fights for equity, diversity, and inclusion. The vile and racist actions and messages of the white supremacists and neo-Nazi groups in Charlottesville are in stark opposition to ALA's core values. No matter the venue or the circumstance, we condemn any form of intimidation or discrimination based on culture, ethnicity, gender, nationality, race, religion, or sexual orientation. Our differences should be celebrated, and mutual respect and understanding should serve as the norms within our society. Now, what I just read was American Library Association President Jim Neal's statement released on August 14th, cementing ALA's position on the egregious events that transpired in Charlottesville, Virginia on August 12th. Now, I wanted to read it full at the beginning of this episode so that you know exactly where we stand on this where we should all stand on this as Americans, as librarians, as human beings. Personal politics aside, we here at ALA are cognizant of the fact that the association represents a wide swath of people uh, with often divergent political stances. And these differences and the fact that we find ways to work together because of and despite them are what makes ALA and the library profession so strong. But there are red lines. And one of those red lines is hate. We will not stand for hate. We will not stand for white supremacy. We will not stand for neo-Nazis, Confederate apologists, and historical revisionists. We will not stand for racism, anti-Semitism, and bigotry. These things are antithetical to who we are as librarians, as Americans, and as people in general. But that said, here we are. Again, the ugly side of our country is rearing its head. Again. And that's the important thing that we all seem to forget. That word, again. This, all of this... It's always been here, it's, but it's been embold late, emboldened lately in ways that we haven't seen since uh, D.W. Griffith's uh, film Birth of a Nation elevated and gave win to the KKK in 1915. So what do we do? Well, that's a good question. It's a hard, multifaceted one to answer, but we have to try. We have to try to answer it. Today, on the Dewey Decimal Podcast, we look at Charlottesville through the eyes of the library world. First, I talked to John Holliday. He's the director of Jefferson Madison Regional Library in Charlottesville, and Krista Farrell. She's the assistant director and branch manager of Jefferson Madison Regional Library Central Library. Jefferson Madison Library it sits on what was the front lines of the August 12th protests. John and Krista shared with me the events of that day and how their library handled it. Next, I talked to Jody Gray. She's the director of ALA's Office for Diversity, Literacy, and Outreach Services, and Kristen Peacol. Assistant Director of ALA's Office for Intellectual Freedom. We discussed ALA's tracking of hate crimes at and in libraries and what you can do if your library falls victim to hate. And finally, I talked to Peter Berg. He's the Associate Director for Special Collections and Preservation at Michigan State University Libraries. Michigan State University Libraries holds a massive collection of extremist literature, paraphernalia, and other materials. Peter and I discussed the collection and why it's important for, for libraries and museums to save these materials, despite the repugnant nature of some of the stuff. But first, a word from a sponsor. 
How can you transform library data into impactful services? What feature do libraries value the most when evaluating information sources? Which were the most popular interlibrary loan titles for the last five years? What does S.R. Ranganathan, the father of modern library science, have to say about shyness? All these questions have been explored on the OCLC Next blog. So many libraries operate on behalf of a very local, specific audience. Whether you're at a public library serving one town or city, or an academic library taking care of your students and faculty, you best understand your users' needs. But that can be a challenge when it comes to synthesizing trends among libraries of different types, sizes, and countries. And that's where OCLC Next comes in. Because of OCLC's global reach, staff and member leaders from many disciplines are exposed to developments and ideas that reach across the entire library community. Uh, they wrap their thoughts into quick, compact posts in order to share knowledge from the world's libraries with you. So check out oc.lc slash next to read the latest post or subscribe to a weekly email. We all watched in horror disgust on August 12th as our country's worst elements, the alt-right, neo-Nazis, white supremacists, Confederate sympathizers, racists, bigots, anti-Semites, and more, descended upon the city of Charlottesville, bringing with them not only voices filled with hate, but also violence, violence that led to death. Jefferson Madison Regional Library was on the front line during the protests. It sits right there near the park. I spoke with John Holliday, the library director, and Krista Farrell, assistant director of the Central Branch, about the events of that day, how it impacted both the library, the Charlottesville community, and much more. Uh, first, um, we wanted to talk about the, the events that happened in Charlottesville a couple of weeks ago. Uh, before we start that, I wanted to, um, for our listeners, um, where is the library located in um, relation to Emancipation Park in Charlottesville? Okay. Well, um, well, first of all, for people who don't know, Charlottesville is a very progressive and tolerant community here in central Virginia. It's very historic. It's uh, where Thomas Jefferson's Monticello is. And it's also home of the uh, University of Virginia, which is one of the, the um, finest universities in the, in the country. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I think it's the progressive nature of the city of Charlottesville that probably uh, caused the city being targeted by uh, the alt-right groups. But, but anyway, the, uh, uh, the central library is adjacent to uh, the park where the uh, Nazis and the white supremacists held their rally on August 12th. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you were kind of right there in the uh, in the thick of everything on the twelfth. Um, right there, the central library is the closest building to uh, the park. Now, um, in, in the days leading up to that, I know that you you were probably you were aware that that there were going to be there was going to be a rally, but were you aware that it would escalate or that, or it, or it would reach um, the size that it was? I, I, I from what I recall you found some white supremacist signage on your front door that Thursday prior. Uh, had, had, would, did that give you some sort of indication of, of things to come? Well, uh, you're correct. There was some um, uh, white supremacist uh, literature posted on the, the front of the library, which we took down immediately. Mm -hmm. um, but we really knew well before that that there was going to be a problem because uh, we were monitoring some of the alt-right websites, and they, they were um, encouraging people from all over the country, uh, neo-Nazis, white supremacists, uh, alt-right folks, to rally in Charlottesville on August 12th. So we were really expecting a, a pretty large crowd. We, 
we uh, talked to the police weeks uh, before the event, and they were estimating at that time probably about 4,000 people, uh, ralliers and counter-protesters would probably be in the park, which is a very small park uh, adjacent to the, the Central Library. So, so we knew weeks in advance um, that there was going to be this rally and that there would likely be some problems with it. Uh, the city police also told us uh, several weeks in advance that all the streets around the Central Library would be closed uh, on the day of the rally. So um, there wouldn't be any public parking for library patrons or, or library staff. Um, and also, uh, we did expect that a lot of the ralliers coming were coming armed and really looking for trouble. So, um, with, with the, so knowing that the streets were going to be closed and that a lot of the people coming to the rally would be presenting a, a hazardous situation to library patrons and library staff, um, that's why, that's why, uh, several weeks before August 12th, library administration um, recommended and the library board agreed just to close the central library on the day of the rally. Now, um, I guess leading up to that, how did you prepare? If, 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 if I recall right, uh, you, you, you yourself, John, you stayed in the library during during the rally. How did you, and I guess, how did you prepare your staffers um, for for the events of that weekend? Well, um, um, again, since we had we knew what it was coming in advance. We, we kind of viewed it as any other kind of a storm. This was a human storm, but mm -hmm. just like a hurricane or a blizzard, uh, we took uh, all the steps that we could think of. Um, so we, you know, posted on our website in advance that the library would close. The library building had signs saying that the library would close that day. Um, uh, we, uh, before the day of the rally, we removed all the library vehicles off-site so that they wouldn't be harmed. Um, and, and the night before the rally, Krista and I moved the uh, outdoor trash cans uh, into the library so, uh, so that they wouldn't be used as, as uh, weapons. Uh, one thing that we didn't think of, though, was there's a small garden area in front of the Central Library that's, that's um, outlined with loose bricks. And we hadn't thought of that, but on the morning of the rally, uh, about 8 o'clock in the morning, the police, the Charlottesville police saw the loose bricks and they uh, removed them so that they would not be uh, used by any of the ralliers or, or, or counter-protesters. And, you know, when I, when I say ralliers, uh, Phil, I think sometimes that, that term might sound um, innocent, but it really isn't, you know. Um, uh, unlike what the president said about people coming to Charlottesville to quietly protest the removal of a, a statue, it wasn't that way at all. The people who came to Charlottesville that, that, that day were armed with guns, knives, uh, sticks, shields, right, helmets. I mean, they were coming to battle. There was even a troop of armed uh, militia men carrying um, assault rifles who were marching down the the main street of Charlottesville. So so these weren't people innocently coming to uh, express their opinion about the removal of a, a statue. These these people came here to to cause damage, and uh, so uh, they were ralliers. But uh, it's it's not as innocent as it as it may seem. But um, uh, uh, sorry, well, and I wanted to say there was also publicity prior to the event in our local newspaper, the Daily Progress 
talking about downtown businesses that were going to be open and closed, and the Central Library and the Library Board had decided a few weeks in advance that we were going to be closed. So um, there was it wasn't like the library was just discussing this. Lots of businesses and um, organizations in the downtown area, the McGuffey Art Center, the, the Virginia Children's Discovery Museum, other organizations had already decided to take the same precautions because this wasn't it wasn't a surprise. It wasn't something that we didn't know. We just didn't know quite the volume or the scope of it. We knew something was going to happen, and I think um, it probably exceeded maybe what we thought. I think it was kind of hard for some of us who live here to look at the footage online and to see the pictures from the University of Virginia gathering Friday night, and it was shocking to see the number of people that were marching with torches at the UVA campus. It was just the volume was, was almost shocking. Even though we expected it, it was, it was a little bit hard to believe. You had mentioned some of the, the precautionary measures that you, that you took um, to prepare for this. I'm sure that you have, like, you know, emergency plans and disaster plans. Uh, what did you learn over the course of the weekend? Are there any updates to your contingency plans? Um, how, how, has, how did the events of that weekend affect things moving forward for you? Well, one thing we're going to do, uh, actually, I think things from the library standpoint went pretty well. The, the library building was not damaged at all, and partly good, that was good. just partly to, to the precautions that we took. But we will be meeting with um, library staff from the University of Virginia in the near future to see and discuss with them what futures, what steps we could take in the future to uh, even improve our response. But I think one thing that um, we'll want to do is uh, prepare for um, post-emergency. I, I think our library staff did an excellent job, and I'd like Chris to talk about this, in, in coming up really quickly with some pop-up programs to help the public um, get through the trauma of this event. Um, and so, um, you know, that was kind of done on, on, on the it was done extemporaneously. It was just just done in immediate response to the situation. But I guess in the future we could maybe have some more plans for for some formal programs that we could arrange. But Krista, do you want to say a few things that we did here after the the rally? Sure. In terms of preparation, though, I will say that um, JMRL already had in our five-year plan a goal to work with the emergency planners in the area. So we had already made cart contact and had communications with the local emergency planners, the fire department, the police department. Um, so that was a plus, but that's already been part of our five-year plan, and we will be continuing to work on that. But, yeah, the kind of what do you do afterwards, what's the response afterwards, which I think was where the library re really was able to step up. Um, the adult and reference services department and a few of the rest of us here at the main library had a quick meeting on the 15th um, and said, well, what are we going to do? What can we offer? And very quickly we were able to offer um, counseling, free counseling here at the library. A local group volunteered to provide free one-on-one -on -one counseling. We offered therapy dogs. The other Saturday we had pet therapy dogs. We've had um, music on the front steps. We had a series the other summer where we had music on the library's front porch. But we reached out to musicians, and within two or three days, they were willing to perform on the library's front steps. And the idea was we wanted to bring some positive energy and kind of wash away some of the trauma that had happened really right outside of the library on the street in front of the library. So we had pop-up music on the steps. 
We did a pop-up poem in your pocket, which is a program that we do every April, but we very quickly got permissions and rolled poems and did a distribution on the downtown mall here, which is a pedestrian and business area, last Friday and gave out poems, poems for your pocket. And these were poems that had to do with healing and peace and, and um, cooperation and those kinds of things. So we were able to quickly get permissions to do that from some organizations and some um, from some poets that we had already worked with. So I think what we found out that having Having already worked with outside groups and having those partnerships in place lets you draw on them pretty quickly when there's an emergency. We had active bystander training. We've had some meditation programs. Um, so they were pretty well received, and we also really gained a huge following and increase in our social media. So our Facebook, our Instagram, our Twitter, where we were advertising all these programs, we noticed a huge uptick in the people that we were reaching in those areas. Oh, excellent. Um, now, I, I want to talk a bit about the, the, the day itself on the 12th. Now, you, the library was closed, but as you mentioned, John, you were there. But you did, um, you did open the library for law enforcement. Uh, can you talk about that a little bit? So um, the rally was supposed to start at 12 o'clock, 12 noon, and um, uh, ralliers started to gather about 8 or 8.30 in the morning. So there was quite a crowd of uh, ralliers and counter-protesters by 9.30 or 10. And it started out with counter-protesters singing spirituals, um, and then uh, the ralliers started yelling at them. Um, and then that ex escalated probably by 10.30 or 11 o'clock, uh, people throwing water bottles from one group to the other. And then that just escalated to the point where there was actually physical clashes, people hitting each other with and um, there were some chemical sprays and, you know, the, probably the kind of things that most people have, have uh, seen on TV. Mm -hmm. But um, by 11.45, uh, 15 minutes before the rally was supposed to begin, the local police uh, declared that it was an illegal assembly and that uh, people had to leave or be arrested. And I was really impressed with the way the police handled that. Uh, and so the, by noon or a little bit afternoon, the whole area around the public library was deserted. Uh, there was no one here other than uh, the police who were, were still guarding the streets and, and the park. Um, and that's pretty much the way it, it remained throughout the afternoon uh, around the central library. So it was a very hot day. And so... Uh, as the afternoon went on, uh, we invited um, police and uh, soldiers in to uh, use the restrooms, uh, get some water, and just, just get out of the heat because the library is air-conditioned. And so until about 6.30 or 7 o'clock at night, we uh, let the, uh, the law enforcement officials uh, use the library as a place just to cool off. You may, you may actually you might wonder, well, why didn't, why didn't the library uh, have them in at the beginning of the day. Part of the reason for that was that we didn't want the library to become a target. Unfortunately, in, in these situations, a lot of times the law enforcement officials do become targets. And um, so uh, our, our thinking was, you know, if we had, in effect, set the library up as a headquarters for the police that day, that the library would have been targeted by the neo-Nazis. Oh, absolutely. Um, now you you'd mentioned some of the the, the post um, event uh, things that you had you'd offered for the community. Um, 
Now, I wonder, or I'd like to know, I'm sure our listeners would like to know, too, what's, what are you hearing from your patrons about those days? What's, what's, what's the feeling uh, in, in Charlottesville and, and amongst your patrons? What are you hearing from them? Well, if you've been following the news at all, our city still is somewhat in turmoil. Um, and, and, well, the city council, the city government, the, the community reactions to that day, there's still a lot of emotion and anger, I think, and questions about how the day unfolded and, and the responses. And so the library is hearing that. We're listening. We're just listening. And we feel like um, it's going to be a while We'll probably be offering counseling again down the road. Perhaps there are many community organizations that are still offering that. We certainly are um, fortunate that Overdrive uh, have donated a collection of materials for our Overdrive patrons on the topics that relate around the um, reasons or you know the turmoil that brought up this rally and what's going on in our country right now in this in this area. So I think um, we're still responding. I think it's going to take a little while to figure out, um, you know, what how this has impacted our community and, and the country, in fact, um, to, mm -hmm. to see where to go next. But, you know, libraries are constantly responding. We're constantly flexible, um, working on what we can do to help our community. Um, our meeting rooms are used by community organizations all the time, and we had seen that coming up to the situation in August. Actually, and if you look, you know, there was also a KKK rally back in July. Um, we had been using a Libraries Are For Everyone uh, graphic design that librarians can pick up online if they just Google librarians. Libraries Are For Everyone. And we had had that signage up all summer, and we still have it up, and I think it was never more true than this summer. So um, we're still responding, and I think our patrons are still processing and responding also. Um, yeah, I, think, I think our patrons were pretty positive, though, about the library's right. response on the day. Uh, people, I think, thought it was a good idea that the library closed that day. Right. We didn't get the, you know, I know there have been crises and traumatic situations in other cities, in Baltimore, in Ferguson, where the library was open. It was a different type of situation, though, where the library was a safe space. It was a place for families and children to continue their education because of the turmoil that was going on across the community. This was a very different situation in that a group came, a lot of things happened on one weekend, and then for the most part, they left, and it's died down. So we're back to kind of, you know, operating as usual. I will say that being located next to Emancipation Park where the statue still stands and there is still some controversy and decisions that need to be made about that statue means that things are kind of in flux any day, you know, things can change. Um, but, uh, yeah, our patrons have been very supportive. I think we've had a lot of comments, you know, about it was a good thing that we were closed that day. One thing I'd like to know, and I think maybe some of our listeners would like to know as well, if, if there are other libraries that should find themselves in a similar situation that, that um, Jefferson Madison found themselves in, what advice would you give them? Well, like I said earlier, I think part of the problem is that we're a very progressive community, and, and that's why we were targeted for, for this event, similar to a Berkeley, California. Um, so if you live in a progressive community, you know, unfortunately, this is part of the price you pay that you may be targeted by 
uh, neo-Nazis or white supremacists. Um, I, I guess you, uh, having keeping that in mind, you might want to, if depending on what you want to do, if you want to remove a statue or something like that, I would recommend you do it more quickly. <laughs> good point. Good point. Get, get it out of there. Don't you know? Don't give people months to uh, to organize uh, an event like like we had here in Charlottesville. Um, Anyway, or come up with some other uh, kind of other option that that won't uh, bring about such violence. Uh, and there, are, I guess, there are several options. But in Charlottesville, the city council, representing the people of Charlottesville, decided to remove a, a statue from the park. And that's our right. This is our community. We don't have to have a statue if we don't want it. And it's unfortunate that people from other states co will come here to tell us how to run our city. But that's what happened, and and we're all about free speech in Charlottesville. This is where Jefferson and Madison are from, and so the, the city council realized it, you know, in in support of free speech, they wanted to let this rally uh, proceed. And so um, there may be some legal ways that a community could prevent that, um, but. Uh, but as far as local libraries go, I think they just have to see what their local government does and do the best they can to support it. The impulse to create archives is rooted in the very human need to leave one's mark on the world. Whether through letters, diaries, reports, photographs, films, or a teenager's simple need to scrawl, I was here on a subway wall. There's a deep desire in individuals to tell their stories, to be seen, literally and figuratively, in archives. With this desire comes the need to ensure that archives are as diverse as the world we live in and to preserve the individuals and cultures that cultures that have been consciously or unconsciously underserved in the archives. The book Through the Archival Looking Glass, a reader on diversity and inclusion edited by Mary A. Caldera and Catherine M. Neal, features 10 essays that explore prominent themes related to diversity, including creating a diverse record, recruiting diversity to the profession and retaining a diverse workforce, and questioning the archive itself on representation, authority, neutrality, objectivity, and power. This book illustrates a multitude of perspectives and issues that so that fresh voices can emerge alongside familiar ones, and new concepts can be examined with new treatments of established ideas. Diversity is an ever-evolving concept the term itself is increasingly rephrased as inclusion. By stimulating further ideas and conversation, we can come closer to a common understanding of what diversity and inclusion are or can be, and perhaps most importantly, how they may be realized in archives and the archival profession. You can find the book Through the Archival Looking Glass, a reader on diversity and inclusion, and much more at the ALA Store. That's at alastore.ala.org. What should you do if your library is affected by a hate crime? Be it vandalism of property, verbal altercations, or attacks on patrons and staff? The obvious, the obvious answer is to turn to the authorities first, of course. But you can also turn to the American Library Association. ALA is tracking hate crimes in libraries. And I spoke to Jody Gray, director of ALA's Office for Diversity, Literacy, and Outreach Services, and P Kristen Peekle, she's the assistant director of ALA's Office for Intellectual Freedom, about that project the results so far, and how ALA can help libraries that turn to us in these situations. Kristen or Jody, um, how long has ALA been tracking hate crimes in libraries? 
It was after the 2016 uh, November presidential election that we noticed an uptick in, in hate crimes across the country, um, but also that are happening within libraries and how we can respond to those, we need to know what's going on. So within the Office for Intellectual Freedom's um, book challenge and censorship online reporting form, we've now included a category for hate crimes. This started in November 2016, so we are about three quarters of a year through. Um, and just a lot of the articles that we find, a lot of the reports are articles that we hear about in the news. Um, so we really need to increase more awareness of the reporting for librarians. Now, um, I, can, can, you, can, you, can we get into the actual incidents themselves? What kind of incidents are being reported? Because there is the, the very clear definition between, actually it's kind of cloudy at certain points, between hate speech and hate crime. So what exactly are people reporting to ALA? So we've defined hate crimes in library are being criminal acts it's usually graffiti, vandalism, defacement of library property um, that happens within a library or a school library, um, media centers, even universities. This is not hateful speech that might be on a blog post comment or hateful speech within the physical environment of the library. This is an actual crime. What have you found so far? Are, are, you know you're still you're actively um, compiling all this information and analyzing it, but so far, and I know it's you kind of uh, it might be going through the end of this year because it's going to be evaluated at that point. But what uh, do you have any reports that you can share with us? Um, any things that stick out in your mind? The majority of hate crimes that are reported to us include racial slurs, uh, swastikas vandalized on books and in bathrooms and libraries. That's the majority of them. We've had a situation in Texas where two Qurans were found in the bathroom toilet. Um, situations of harassment have been reported to us of librarians and of uh, library patrons, but the vast majority of them are defacement of library materials, furniture, swastikas etched into tabletops, um, racial slurs in books, things like that. Wow. Um, now this information when it comes to, it comes into OIF, but eventually it's passed along to you, Jody. Um, what are you, what are you and, and the Oblos office doing with this information? Um, yeah, so basically we kind of look at it as um, because things can get kind of muddy whether it's a crime or not. If somebody feels strongly enough that they're reporting to us, it's obviously had some sort of impact on the library staff and the library community. So we, in our office, start to look at it from a how do we give support in terms of uh, developing um, ways to support your staff when they've experienced trauma or if they um, need to develop more um, intercultural or cultural competency type skills. Um, so we really, um, basically, when we get the report, reach out to the directors um, and, and, and say, like, we know this is a difficult situation. We know that it's not um, easy to know the best way to respond. 
we have some resources. We've created things like our Libraries Respond website, which has kind of become the place where every time um, we see an uptick or a trend in something that's happening in libraries around the country, um, we try and create resources for the libraries themselves to um, support their staff and build up their, um, you know, ability to protect the library spaces in particular. So um, we, ha I've had a lot of conversations. Some of them have, um, you know, developed into us going to a particular library and having a, like day-long training. Some of it is just a discussion and um, helping a library director figure out like where do I get the support that I need or how do I start these conversations with my staff. Wow. Now if there are any libraries out there, any of our listeners out there at a library and they're experiencing such incidents, what can they do? Um, I know there is an online form. Uh, do you recommend them going to the online? I mean of, co of course go to the police first. Of course. Yes. File, file a report and then come to ALA and we can help. But what can what can libraries do? I mean, I think it's a matter of like having conversations right now because I think that we are, I mean, this isn't new, but libraries have been a space for a lot of marginalized communities um, for a long, long time. And so um, we, before we started tracking all of this, had been starting to try and develop more conversations around how do we really change um, the systems that we're in to address sort of the systemic racism and systemic sexism and um, homophobia that exists in um, in just public spaces in general. How do we do that? And I think that's, um, I mean, I think being proactive, not waiting even until um, an incident occurs, I think it's, it's not something that can easily be addressed. Um, either even before or after. There's not like a checklist or a stamp we can give you that says, okay, you've resolved this issue. It is an ongoing lifelong journey and we can help facilitate how to start that in our office, whether it's through us or we can help you find the appropriate um, people to help facilitate those conversations. Librarians can also, you know, read up on the issue and we're doing, you're seeing lots of blog posts and articles talking about um, racism and sexism, homophobia in libraries, um, how to combat the issue. Uh, we're continually trying to gather these kind of resources and, and have these conversations, provide responses, but even just, you know, calling ALA and having a conversation with someone here if you have questions about how to handle certain things. We had a librarian call us um, the other day with a hypothetical question about contact information for the KKK and if that's something that they should provide as a reference service if somebody asks for it and how you know is that supporting a terrorist group and is that you know is that a crime is that where do libraries stand in providing that kind of information um, and so hearing those kind of questions and having those conversations helps us help librarians and that's basically what we're trying to do uh, and you know it doesn't have to be a crime to call us to report it even if hate speech is going on in your library or maybe you have questions or just want to talk to somebody about um, 
the, the violence that's going on in the country and, and how, to, how to safeguard your library, um, you can do that as well. There was discussions about Charlottesville and what the public library did there during the, um, the I don't think you can call it a protest, riot, mm-hmm. um, and I kind of how to prepare for those things. So, you know, people can call us and just shoot around some ideas and talk about what's best practices. And, um, and, and this is a, a different side note, but when I've talked with librarians who are reporting book challenges and censorship within libraries, it can be an incredibly stressful situation. And I know that when librarians and directors are dealing with hate crimes and hate speech, it can also be an incredibly stressful experience. Um, and so just having someone to talk to and know that we're there to support them. We may not have all the answers or all the resources yet, but we are definitely um, an ear to listen to. We all know about Hoopla, right? Of course. Hoopla Digital is a revolutionary digital service that brings hundreds of thousands of movies, full music albums, audiobooks, and more to your library. From Hollywood blockbusters to best-selling artists and authors, uh, but not just the hits, you can also find niche and hard-to-find titles as well. You'll, you'll find them all on Hoopla. Hoopla Digital can be a part of everyday life for everyone, and today, that includes kids with the new Hoopla Kids Mode setting. Hoopla Kids Mode is the gateway to a multi-format, family digital media experience. All the content, books, videos, and music has been selected and brought together in one place to give kids and families an environment where young minds can explore and discover the world around them safely through media. Check out the Hoopla Kids mode on Hoopla. For more information, you can find it at hoopladigital.com. The extremist elements who descended upon Charlottesville on the 12th were drawn to the city to protest Charlottesville City Council's efforts to remove a statue of Confederate General Robert E. Lee and to rename the park where the statue stood. They claimed, as did uh, President Trump, that the removal of the statue is tantamount to erasing America's history and heritage. Many others, myself included, feel very much otherwise. These statues were erected well after the Civil War not as a means to honor a battle or a general, but as a vile reminder to African Americans during the Jim Crow era of their quote-unquote place in post-Reconstruction America. These are not memorials to history, they are memorials to hate, and the removal of many of them in cities and towns across the U.S. after Charlottesville lends credence to that thought. Now that said, there is a strange ambiguity amongst the general U.S. population about these statues. An NPR PBS NewsHour Marist University poll conducted after the violence in Charlottesville asked respondents if the statues honoring leaders of the Confederacy should remain standing as historical symbols or be removed. 62% of people agreed that the statue should stay put. Now another angle is that the statues should be taken down but moved to institutions where they can be viewed and studied as pieces of history like the protesters claim them to be. This is not a new concept, of course. Many libraries themselves have extensive collections full of materials from extremist groups. These collections are important because they put the materials in historical context rather than celebrate them. Michigan State University Libraries is one such institution. Their radicalism collection includes books, pamphlets, periodicals, posters, and tons more ephemera covering a wide variety of viewpoints on political, social, economic, and cultural issues and movements in the U.S. and throughout the world both on the left and the right. The collection has materials devoted to Timothy Leary, 
the Black Panther Party, neo-Nazi organizations, the Christian right, the KKK, as well as, uh, as, well as uh, tracks on Holocaust revisionism, fascism, neo-Nazism, white supremacism, and other anti-Zionist uh, collections and books. These materials can be viewed at the library and uh, digital copies can even be borrowed through interlibrary loan. I spoke with Peter Berg, Associate Director for Special Collections and Preservation at MSU Libraries, about this very interesting collection and why it's so important to keep these materials, even if some of them are so vile. Peter, you, um, Michigan, Michigan State University uh, Libraries, you have a very interesting collection. I believe it's called the American Radicalism Collection, and you have over 17 thousand items, books, pamphlets, periodicals, posters, etc., on a wide variety of social, political, economic issues in America. And they they they're both from the left and I think from the right. Um what's uh, let's begin where does the collection come from first? Well, um thank you for asking. Uh the collection really got its start about a half century ago. Uh, when the library acquired um, a very large collection of the American uh, Communist Party of the United States. Uh, but when that came in, there was also discussion, as I understand it, that um, they wanted to do more uh, than just collect in this one area, and they wanted to establish um, a, a larger collection that would reflect uh, radical viewpoints, extreme uh, political, social, economic uh, viewpoints um, in the United States. And so uh, in addition to the American Communist Party uh, information, we also began collecting John Birch Society. This is all back in the, in the late 50s, early 60s. And so they, they collected um, uh, the Birch rights uh, growing civil rights movement. At the same time, uh, there was the growing anti-war movement um, on this campus and many other ones. And so uh, that material was collected as well. And frankly, um, the collection for many years reflected a bias towards um, uh, the left progressive politics mm -hmm. uh, because of the fact that where we're located um, on a college campus and that's where most of our donors were coming from to give us material. Um, but we always try to keep some balance by having uh, right-wing material as well. So we, uh, we made a purchase of some Ku Klux Klan material and, um, and also tried to uh, buy material from some neo-Nazis. Uh, Michigan also, and particularly in Lansing, uh, in the early 90s was the site of, the, um, of a demonstration by a group that at that time was unknown called the Michigan Militia. And then with the Oklahoma City bombing, the Michigan militia uh, uh, blew into the headlines, and lo and behold, we did have some information on them. So we were contacted by many news outlets and wondering who are these guys and to send us in any information you have on them. It was from that that I realized that uh, we needed to do more um, collection gathering, information gathering for uh, right-wing extremism because I felt even at that time that it was going to become uh, a bigger part of our political and social uh, landscape. Um, as a result of some of this collecting, we were contacted by a donor uh, who had been uh, accumulating a lot of material about the, um, the extreme right, which I guess now would be called the alt-right, um, for a bibliography that he was working on for, on anti-Semitism. 
And he said, hey, I'm finding a lot of, uh, of the stuff that I have, that you have as well. Might you be interested in collecting all at once this very large collection of right-wing material? This was, oh, about 10 years ago. And I immediately jumped on it. Um, it has uh, since been called the Arsenal Collection. It's a collection of about 10,000 leaflets, books, periodicals issued by extremists or right-wing organizations, primarily in the United States, but also some in Western Europe, um, uh, featuring late 19th century, 20th century, and even 21st century materials um, that we have here, primarily in English. We're very proud of the fact that we are cataloging this as quickly as it comes in. Uh, we still have a long way to go, and we think at the end of it, uh, we'll probably have between 20 and 25,000 thousand items um, on this particular topic. Oh, wow. Um, I think one question that, that arises, and it has actually, it's been um, in the cultural conversation now in the, in the aftermath of Charlottesville, um, is why do we collect these things? And it's, it's, it's um, mm -hmm. an argument in regards to these uh, Confederate monuments. Um, there's, uh, you know, some people would want them in place as um, monuments to history, and other people say that they should be in a museum or in a library um, and use it that way. I think the question is mm -hmm. why, why do we collect these things? Well, uh, we collected here uh, primarily, and I feel very strongly about this, um, I, I believe that universities should be areas where people can come, um, scholars, 18-year-old uh, uh, freshmen can come and learn about um, uh, American history and culture uh, in all of its uh, forms and viewpoints. Um, I believe that by having all of this in a university library setting in particular um, provides uh, the researcher the opportunity to study this in an area that, uh, in which there's no bias and they can study it for what it is and judge it on its own merits. Um, it is part of who we are, whether some of us like it or not. Some of this extremist literature uh, from the Klan, from uh, the globalist conspiracies, the protocols of the learned elders of Zion, um, all of this is who we are. And as I said, whether we like it or not, it is there, and it is part of our history and culture. And as a university research library, I feel strongly that um, uh, we have a duty uh, to, um, if we have the opportunity to do so, to hold this material, preserve it, uh, save it, make it accessible, but do it not so much in open stacks where material might be stolen or vandalized, uh, but put in a special collections where that material can be used in a controlled setting where the material is secure, where there is assistance uh, if needed. And um, uh, it's just part of our mission, and it's a mission that I'm very proud of as a university librarian. Oh, absolutely. I think uh, what you said is very important. The context is key in being able to, to study these things. And uh, you know, we, we can't erase the past, but uh, we should collect it and, and, and have it available for study, for, for research purposes. Now, of, of, exactly. all, the, the, of all the um, materials in the collection, is there anything that to you personally sticks out um, as, a, as a highlight or something that um, – that, that, that you're drawn to particularly mm -hmm. in the collection. Right. Well, lately the one that, that is sticking out, of course, is, is the, um, uh, the white nationalism. And we had for some time been collecting neo-Nazi. Uh, we had the serial, the stormtrooper, uh, and we had um, uh, other, other um, uh, 
serials from from groups like that neo-nazi group so that of course is getting a lot of play right now but the one that that has has um been of the most benefit to us as far as on campus because really I buy this so that our our classes and our professors and our students can use them is a lot of our um, uh, Holocaust denial and anti-Semitism um, uh, materials and that is because we have a thriving Jewish studies program and we do have a uh, an endowed professorship in fact that studies the Holocaust and so I am in contact with this professor and she has classes uh, that like to use that, that want to use this material so that they can study uh, um, uh, the types of material that is out there that denies that the Holocaust ever took place. And both of us feel that this is very important for students to understand that although something that they know that is part of their family history possibly, uh, there are other people who say, no, this never occurred and this is why. And it's important to study that, I think, so that you have an understanding of, of what this world is all about and who is in it and how we can best um, deal with those kind of conflicting viewpoints. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's hate is out there, but in order to understand yeah. it, you kind of, you have to confront it. So I'm glad that That's you, right. I've got Michigan State and many other universities that uh, are collecting these, uh, these materials and uh, making them available for study. Uh, you're doing important right. work. Um, if, well, anyone, if, if anyone of our listeners um, would like to check out the collection uh, to Michigan State University, actually, if you go to the website, uh, uh, Michigan State University Library's website, you have a whole section on the radicalism collection. It's uh, fascinating reading, and it just touches on what you have. Um, That's Peter, right. Uh, Peter Berg, thanks so much for joining Dewey Duffel Podcast, and um, I appreciate it. I appreciate it. it. Thanks very much, Phil. That wraps another episode of the Dewey Decibel Podcast. I'd like to thank all of our guests, John Holliday and Krista Farrell from Jefferson Madison Public Library in Charlottesville, Jody Gray and Kristen Peekel from ALA, and Peter Berg from Michigan State University Libraries for the insightful and necessary conversations we had today. Thank you all very much. Join us next month as Dewey Decibel heads overseas to report on libraries and library efforts from around the world, including reports from the IFLA World Conference in Rockwall, Poland from uh, ALA Associate Editor Tara Dankowski. Now, as always, you can find us on Twitter and Facebook. Stop by, tell us how we're doing, what you'd like to hear from us, what kind of shows you'd like to listen to. We want to know all these things. Please drop us a line. iTunes users, also, please give us a review if you can. Your words and ratings help us in the rankings and allow us to reach more ears. If you have any questions, you can shoot me a personal email at deweydecibel at ala.org. I promise to get back to you. Until next month, I'm Phil Moorhart, Associate Editor of American Libraries Magazine, and this is the Dewey Decibel Podcast. Mm-hmm.